This is Rethinking Deviants. My name is Michael Bryden. Does our justice system work? Is it just? What does it mean to be just? Rethinking Deviants seeks to explore these ideas. This time I speak with Dr. Tyson Yakaporter, who is a member of the Apletch clan from Northern Queensland in Australia. Tyson is also a senior research fellow in Indigenous Knowledges at Deakin University and the recent author of Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. I've known Tyson for almost a decade now and we first met working for the Aurora Education Foundation where Tyson was the educational lead. The foundation seeks to help young Indigenous people thrive both academically and culturally. In this episode we discuss the colonial space, Indigenous perspectives on deviance and social control, the culture wars, what police ought to take away from this discussion, and the idea that humans are a custodial species. This episode was recorded in May of 2021. Please enjoy it. Welcome, Tyson. Uh, before we begin, I might just say that I read your book, Sand Talk, during the, well, one of the Melbourne lockdowns, and it was a very comforting read, and it was interesting to see a different perspective on how the world could look in a way that aligns with sort of indigenous knowledges and ways of thinking. So do you want to talk a bit about your background and how you came to academia? Well, I guess um, just being a deviant, I suppose. Is <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, so it's, you know, we're, we're all kind of living, you know, in these uh, colonies and city-states and, and, and great nations you know, I mean, the system of nationhood is only, you know, about a century old. And, you know, we've been horrendously changed in order to fit into that. And all of us are sitting in a state of disconnection and lawlessness. And so I guess, you know, it's been my struggles with that, of looking at, well, you know, which law and what do I answer to? And how do I move through the world in good relation with the world? Um, when most of the world is out of relation, you know, with place, with each other, everything else. And I guess you, you just get pinged around with, with no agency as a deviant within that system um, until you understand the difference between deviance and divergence. You know, you can find ways to be divergent uh, that are uh, generative, creative, um, useful and, and allow you to bring yourself and the people around you into better relation. And um, I guess that's been our relationship um, over the last decade, you and I, is, has been starting out um, trying to find ways to do that. And you and I both worked together on a, a program where, you know, we were kind of flying by the seat of our pants and sort of saying, we're not going to have rules, like a list of English rules you know, for this program, for all these kids and for all the staff and everything else, we're, um, you know, we're going to follow Indigenous protocols. We're going to negotiate these together under the guidance and authority of elders and establish protocols which will be different in each place where we go. You know, so we had to be responsive and committed to that law, the law of the land, and, you know, our own law ancestrally, your law from Tasmania, 
and you know and uh, quite a few other tasmanian aboriginal people like yourself in that group and people from all over having to navigate those those spaces in lawful ways in our way and then dealing with the conflicts as they arose between our law and then the law of the economic system and the marketplace we're operating in and the institutions of education you know policing governance everything you know all of it you know trying to navigate that so um so you and i have been doing this this work together for a long time of trying to navigate these spaces and most of the time you just have to speak from that um that colonizing space from the space of the colonizer that we both have to uh work within if we want to keep eating and be sheltered you know but we also have to hold on to that <laughs> in ourselves ways of staying in right relation and lawful as much as possible you know to hold that memory of what it is to live in relation with the community and a landscape to be embedded within that landscape because eventually the world will need that well the world already needs it but eventually the world will have no other choice but to come back to that and um you know i guess uh and people like yourself and me and others are kind of just uh holding that open so, so i guess say, that's so that's how i came to it is just through the okay. same way you, you did you know is through that struggle of um not just reconciling things but of you know holding that door open yeah so for people who aren't as familiar with these ideas could you explain a bit more tangibly what you mean when you say indigenous people have to live within a colonial space yeah, well, I mean, you know, so we come we we come under our own law and and that law is very disrupted and very mixed up, you know, but it, it is the law of the land and as such there is still that strong permanent immutable foundation of indigenous law that's in every place where you might stand on the planet. You know, that's the law of the land there no matter what temporary structures and institutions you build over the top of them. And in all of those places, and I'm talking, I'm talking everywhere. I'm talking in France. I'm talking in Japan. I'm everywhere. You know, there are people who are keeping that law and holding on to it. And this uh, necessarily places you kind of outside of of the law that you're having to inhabit. The law that will imprison you. The law that will kill you. You know, if you <laughs> happen to uh, deviate, you know, from whatever that constantly shifting paper law is from day to day then you know you will <laughs> and you know as you know most people break at least five laws a day anyway without even knowing it so you know indigenous and marginal populations uh sort of come under a lot more surveillance and, and scrutiny than others and you know uh, these can't be openly stated you know as being race-based or ethnicity or anything else you know so there's sort of a catch-all for a certain economic stratum and individually, people like yourself and myself can move across those lines uh, because that's the way, you know, this sort of framework, this almost law of human rights was established, uh, was to allow individuals to have human rights. Uh, but communities can't, especially communities that are outside the current one. So I guess a good example most people would understand would be uh, the Jewish example of a community maintaining their own laws, you know, within, you know, uh, the infrastructure of a dominant culture that's kind of hostile, you know, to that separate community of laws. Like, so for example, I mentioned human rights, 
you know, when the rights of man were being established uh, following the French Revolution in France, seeing we were talking about France too, let's do that. <laughs> when those were being established, there was a lot of debate about the Jewish question. The same way as in Australian Federation, there was a lot of debate about the Aboriginal question. So, you know, how best to eradicate this separate system that needs eradicating for the, for the rest to take over. So the Jewish question was the same. And where they arrived at was that uh, Jewish individuals could have human rights, but the Jewish community could not. So communities of Jewish people had no human rights, but Jewish individuals could have human rights. So, you know, every Jew was regarded as human and therefore was able to uh, individually assimilate and rise, you know, within that system of human rights. And sort of that's, that's kind of become what human rights is, is that each of us has our individual rights. And as an individual, we may rise if we can comply with uh, the system that we're living in, then we're afforded these privileges of, of human rights as an individual. Yeah, so that's kind of what it is to be colonized. It's to be broken up from your community. And, not, and that's not just for us, the people who are being invaded and occupied. You know, the occupying culture, their communities are also broken up and individualized. So colonization is something that's, you know, it happens everywhere around the globe and it happens to everybody, you know, because even colonizers must be colonized. They must be fragmented in their communities, in their families, everything else. In order to have basic human rights, you need to become a separate human being a separate entity, an individual <laughs> that is, you know, uh, complying with the project of colonization and is assisting with the project of colonization in order to earn these rights. You find yourself outside of that and you find yourself with no rights pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah, so thinking about colonization and its impact on Indigenous life, especially in relation to social control, uh, what's your understanding of that interplay between colonialism, the criminal justice system, and Indigenous people? Well, crime itself, criminality, it's really just a state of, um, of, of disconnection. It's, it's, it's about living in a state of disrupted relation. It's about living out of relation with place and with community. So anybody who's not in relation with place and community is you know, is kind of living a lawless lifestyle. And that's most people. So most people are on the brink at any stage of descending into complete uh, lawless, lawlessness and anarchy. So the impact of colonization, I mean, you can see this everywhere. I mean, the, the very first landings and disruptions are, always disrupts things catastrophically. So in Australia, you know, they land and they take a beach and they take an area of coastline. And this forces people, you know, whoever isn't massacred, they get forced off that land to move inland. So you've got that sudden and forced migration um, that has really massive impacts um, on the other people. It has impacts with the, um, uh, with the law of having to, to navigate that and negotiate that. Uh, it's also because there's a massive hostile force who come from a culture that can maintain a standing army. That's really important. For most of human history, nobody's been able to maintain a standing army. Armies have been seasonal things that you can, you can 
gather together for one season, but then people have to go home and tend to their crops, their land, you know, their families, their communities, you know, so you can't maintain that. And suddenly you've got an enemy that's doing that. Then you have to change things up. You know, you can't exist in um, communities and villages of small numbers uh, where everything is transparent and everybody knows any, everybody's business. And that provides the checks and balances. So everyone follows the law because nobody can transgress the law because everybody knows, <laughs> you know, um, criminality requires massive amounts of people where anonymity is, um, is possible because people will only attempt crimes. They'll only attempt law-breaking if they think they can get away with it. If they think that nobody will know, nobody will find out the terrible thing that they've done. You know, they can do this with all of this privacy now that you have as an individual, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, but anyway, that initial impact. Uh, so you see even in places like uh, New Guinea, you know, um, they land there and displace a lot of people. Those people go inland and then suddenly there's a lot of fights inland where, you know, forced migrations have put people into conflict with each other. So, you know, the, <laughs> the invaders sort of march over the hill to meet the natives. You know, they've got the pith helmets on and go and see what these darkies are up to you know, and, um, and they see them all fighting and they go, oh, this is a savage, a savage people who's been, you know, existing in, you know, ancient tribal rivalries <laughs> since forever. And then you've got the structures, you know, within, within a decade, you've got the structures are changing because all of the tribes and villages in a region are having to band together and expand and grow and form these hierarchies where, you know, chiefdoms become very powerful, so you've got powerful chiefs taking over large amounts of people, large amounts of people having to be mobilized and together all the time. And there's no transparency there because it's too many people in one place. And they're out of balance with the landscape because they're having to intensively extract food and nutrition and minerals, et cetera, from the landscape. You know, so everything sort of goes wrong. Uh, so a lot of indigenous cultures that you know, um, early anthropology and settler accounts have sort of reported as being lawless and savage, as usually that's what they're uh, observing. In Australia too, um, nobody from outside of Australia ever observed our law in the state that it's meant to be in. They never observed our communities in their original state because, you know, after the first ships landed, you know, that group was invaded. The disease that came with that swept across the entire continent. And it was like COVID. The people who it took out were the elders, were the ones who kept the law and had that authority. There's a difference between power and authority because power in our societies, the Aboriginal societies, is distributed throughout the community and everybody has agency and power. Uh, elders have authority, but they can't boss people. And it's funny how much less law-breaking you have when you don't have bosses. Having bosses is not a state that the human, you know, organism can tolerate. It's a pattern that we all buck up against. We want to resist that. And I think that causes a lot of deviance, especially when those bosses are becoming so ridiculously powerful and they're just externalizing all the damage from the extractive activities they do onto marginalized populations and onto their underlings so that that violence is kicking down from the top so that you see that the power and authority for whom these laws are made to protect their property, they're getting away with murder. You know, they get to destroy everybody and kick down. 
but then you know nobody else is allowed to do that <laughs> you know so you see a lot of people you know always on the brink of sort of going oh stuff it i this this law is not legitimate so you know but you see that appearing i mean you hear it with native americans who had to mobilize and and change their society in order to form the the guerrilla warfare bands that were needed to um, resist occupation etc that radically changed uh, their governance systems and so they had to become the savage people you know <laughs> that the invaders were seeing you know were projecting onto them anyway uh, just in order to survive and 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 keep some reservation land and you know the same way here we're still in this uh, state of colonization you know, we do, we do not have a police service in Australia. We have a police force. Now, what, you know, where do you use that language of force? We don't have a police service. We have a police force because it's, it's a military force. And its purpose, although not openly stated, is to protect and expand the property and extractive activities of the colony. And so that means that um, Aboriginal communities uh, conditions must be made you know, almost intolerable for survival. So the more people are breaking all the time and being jailed, uh, we have more people being jailed and more deaths in custody in the Aboriginal community in Australia than South Africa did at the height of apartheid. Uh, we have more children being removed from their families now and being placed into state care than at the height of the stolen generations you know, which was, you know, something that the government apologised for, part of the white Australia policy of trying to breed out the native, uh, breed out the dark, they figured if they could breed out the dark skin, remove the children and, you know, breed them with settlers, then once everybody ended up looking like yourself, then they would no longer be Aboriginal anymore. People would look like me and you, and then uh, that's it. They're not Aboriginal anymore, because when we look at them, we see black we get rid of the black and we get rid of them. And um, unfortunately, we're still here. You know, you're sitting halfway across the planet and you're still here, brother. <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's very tricky. So, you know, colonization is ongoing. It's not something that happened in the past. Um, and it's also something that happens not just to indigenous people and minority groups, but it happens to everybody. Everybody must be broken down, fragmented, individualized, and put to work in service of... Um, of the colony and the colonial project, which yeah, in the end is about um, extraction. It's about using up a place, using up land until there's nothing left. And that's all it is. It's not much more than that. And that goal is quite clearly stated in every institution. Yeah. And all of the laws of your colony or of your empire, because there are still empires, bros, all of, the, all of these laws are quite openly all about are facilitating that extract extraction and then protecting the illegitimate uh, property of the oligarchs that are uh, that are doing that. So, uh, if you want to talk about criminality, <laughs> yeah, I do think it's funny, and we do discuss this in criminology, but that often when people think about crime and what kind of crime to focus on, they're often quite petty crimes or street-level crimes. It's homelessness, begging, theft, and drug-taking. Yet we often ignore the greater portions of wealth that are taken through white-collar crime. And I think it comes back to some of the differences between Indigenous and non-Indigenous paradigms and what you've been saying, uh, which is about the individual actor. So because the paradigm is within that frame, 
some people think that to solve crime, you've got to punish the individual. But what would you say about a more indigenous approach to punishment or restoring the imbalance that you spoke about before? Yeah, well, well that's just it. It's, it's just as you've described it. You know, so traditionally our justice system um, and, you know, our uh, ways of doing punishment have not been about um, eye for an eye, etc. It hasn't been about that. It's always been about bringing people back into relation again. Um, but more importantly, also transforming, transforming a person who is, has begun to digress or separate or disconnect, someone who's come into a bad relation. Punishment is a thing that's about um, redressing that, about reconnecting. And violence is something uh, that's been highly, highly ritualized and regulated as a way of, of doing because <laughs> violence must be expressed. It must be evenly distributed throughout the community. Everyone should have access to the, uh, the facilities of violence, the affordances of violence. And, um, but every instance of violence must be transparent, must be witnessed by the entire community, and it must be rule-governed, you know, to minimise the damage that it can do. And um, ultimately, it transforms the participants. It's there as a way for people to work things out, it's there as a way for um, people who are transgressing to receive, you know, some kind of, of transformative punishment. And here's the main thing, though. There's no criminal record. If you've committed a crime and you are punished for that, then that's it. We say, finish. That's finished. That doesn't stay with you forever. You know, oh, that's that guy that did that terrible thing. You're just, you know, if you come through the punishment and you have transformed, and not just you, but the entire community is uplifted from that. You know, everybody transforms. And then you are someone who carries that story. And so you're an important person because you carry that story of the cautionary tale of the kind of damage that that, that criminality can do. You know, so you're an important member of the community again. And so, you know, you can have that dignity and return but, you know, the way, the way the world is currently doing, uh, you know, punishment is, you know, it's, that's not the purpose of it. You know, it's there to make sure that we're creating a permanent underclass. Uh, it's, it's there to, you know, in a lot of countries and in the US in particular, you know, that prison industrial complex, you know, it, it's there as a way to um, perpetuate systems of slavery. Because slavery is really the only way uh, civilization, you know, with this sort of murderous uh, self-terminating algorithm of, you know, eternal growth, a growth-based economic system, it's the only way it can survive and keep itself going for more than a couple hundred years. You know, slavery is needed. Slave energy is needed. And so, yeah, that, that was just basically shifted to prisons in the United States and uh, even in Australia, we're starting to copy the uh, privatisation prisons model from the US, and that's that's really spreading uh, globally. You know, it's about um, yeah, basically being able to have slaves, but also to create a permanent underclass. Uh, it's, you're creating a whole heap of people who have no chance of ever rising individ as individuals within a human rights framework. Uh, that sort of thin paper idea of human rights they can't rise within that they're permanently branded a criminal and the rest of their family is then a criminal family as well 
Uh, once that meat reaches a critical mass, then an entire community or neighborhood is now a criminal neighborhood. And then that's all they can do. And that's actually necessary part of the uh, engine, the machinery of the economy. Because in order for anything to be priced, to have value in a growth-based economic system, it has to be limitable and excludable. So you need to have social systems in place that exclude a lot of people from access to that good or service in order for that good or service even to be priced. You can't have a price that's calculated on an algorithm that uh, takes into account who can access this good or service and who can't. So it needs to be limitable and excludable. And if you don't do that, then you can't grow your GDP. You can't have a growth-based economic system. And if your economy isn't growing in this economic model, then it's in recession. If it's shrinking, then it's in depression. So this must be avoided at all costs. So you have to be constantly increasing extraction from people and from land. You can only do this if you have an increasing amount of the population who are uh, excluded from access you know, to the affordances of the civilization. And increasingly, that uh, as you go along, that becomes, you know, just access to the general things that a person needs to survive or a family needs to survive, food, shelter, all the rest. So you've got the US housing market at the moment that's approaching the, the end game of, you know, shelter for people. So you can have at the moment in, the, in a lot of parts of the US, you can have um, a, a couple with no children and they're both on over 100K a year and they have no chance of ever owning their own home or even getting a mortgage to own, own a home. At the moment, there's just, uh, it's impossible to buy real estate in the US. And that's kind of being uh, gobbled up, you know, by a lot of different speculators, et cetera. Uh, the bubble is just expanding ridiculously at the moment. And a lot of people are being excluded, even from shelter. I don't know about you, but my experience of of the US is, is just you know, a lot of desperate people, and a lot of crumbling infrastructure. It just looks like a really crappy place to me. You walk around it, the infrastructure is wrecked. You know, one in four bridges <laughs> are dangerous to drive across in the US and they're not getting fixed anytime soon. And there are homeless people everywhere. And people are very, very desperate. And look, this is, um, this is the world now. So increasingly, you're going to be thinking, oh, so, yeah, we're going to have to punish more people then. We're going to have to punish <laughs> these, cr these criminals. Uh, yeah. You know, meantime, people are being denied access to medication uh, during a massive plague uh, because we have to protect the intellectual property rights. That's what law is for. Uh, we have to protect the... Um, intellectual property rights of billionaires and trillionaires, uh, which means making vaccines, making medications limitable and excludable, you know, so that the uh, extraction and the growth can continue. Yeah, it's funny. So that's, that's that the system we're living within and the system of laws that we're looking at applying to powerless people who, you know, are, um, are staring down the barrel of a, a decade of depression right now in which they will probably die unless they do something illegal. And they'll probably die if they do as well. Mm -hmm. So against that backdrop. Yeah, I have two thoughts. And one is back to your idea of value. 
and it was kind of amusing to see, but when there were talks about opening up some of the vaccine patents, the value of those companies on the stock exchange dropped. So the value of those companies was based on exclusion. Oh, yeah. Um, and so the, the yeah. big, the big um, you know, asset management funds, which are worth quadrillions, that's where the real power in the world is, they call Bill Gates into their office, you know, and they go, boy, <laughs> boy, you, and then he's like, yes, sir. And you get out there and tell them there's no bloody, <laughs> there's no relaxing of patents. That's not going to happen. You're the philanthropist. Make it look good. Go, you know, and so he, off he goes. <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting to back to this idea of, um, I guess, indigenous social control, but social control meaning sort of like more of a consensus-based equilibrium that gets restored when that's yeah. shattered is in like sort of direct opposition to our current system, which is if you do something wrong or bad, at least mm. in the way we view it, then not only do you get punished in isolation, but then you get labelled for life in a, in a way that separates you from other people, like you said, like second-class citizens. In the US, yeah. particularly, that's an issue because um, often that has come with voting rights denial as well. So you are you know, politically disenfranchised. So in, in essence, what you're suggesting perhaps is that the Western criminal justice system works in direct opposition to its stated aims, potentially, if the core object of our justice system is to restore balance in community. Mm. In a sense, that, that system fractures that further. Yeah. Well, look, it's, um, you know, the, the, the occupying culture, it's, its law is based on protecting the sovereign and, and goes the wrong way. So that goes from the top. There's a sovereign who at the moment is a um, old lady who lives in England, you know, so there's the sovereign and um, she holds this sovereignty um, that the entire rest of the empire exists to protect. And every law in that empire is, is in place to protect the sovereignty of her and then at each tier under that of her underlings who have a, a you know, increasingly diluted you know, access to that sovereignty. You know, they have bounds on them each one coming down so it's a top-down sovereignty there um i guess the only difference with us is it's a bottom-up sovereignty our, our governance models you know are based on the the self-determination of each unit but then the um the limit on that um self-determination is its re its relation its belonging to a collective of other units that also form a self-determining mm -hmm. sovereign group you know, which then exists in a network with other groups, which also have a collective sovereignty. So it's a fractal pattern that comes up, you know, from the ground up. So each individual is sovereign. It's um, anathema in our culture to boss somebody. You can't boss them. So each person has their own sovereignty and their own dignity. Now, you and I are together in this kind of uh, sibling kind of relation that we have. You know, we form a, a little collective, a, a, a pair that we have, and we have sovereignty together. So I have my individual sovereignty, but when I'm in our collective, us two, my individual sovereignty is limited by the, the bounds of that, that relationship, you know, that we've established together. Uh, that's also sitting within cultural bounds. And so those cultural limits enforce what we can say to each other, what we can do together. 
um, all these kinds of things. And our little pair also sits in a, a larger network of people and a community of people that we know well and that we've worked with and we've done uh, ceremony with and all kinds of things uh, over the last 10 years. You know, done a lot of knowledge work and uh, cultural activity. All of those are sitting within within the bounds of, of the law of the land and, you know, of the, the relationships there. So we have that collective and within that collect that collective itself is sovereign, uh, but that's networked out to other collectives, <laughs> which are also sovereign. And then that network forms a larger one and that is sovereign. And so it's kind of, it, it builds up until you end up. Um, so I guess the top, the top of that, you know, uh, bottom up framework is the continental common law of Australia, which is, um, you know, that unifying law of the Bora, you know, when you talk to the old men, you know, when you go through initiation, you know, you go through the Bora and it doesn't matter where you go through, whether it's on your tribal lands or somewhere 3000 kilometers away. And the Bora, like the old people tell you, Bora is Bora. That's that legal institution that covers the entire continent. You can travel to the opposite side of the continent and you can still go through the law there as a young man or as a young woman. Um, because that's that continental common law. And so we have a continental collective, you know, that sits within those frameworks, even though each region's specific, you know, legal structures are different and stories are different. And, you know, you respect those as you're moving through on that country. You know, we do have this unified, complete thing. But each region is sovereign. Let's select local governments. If you imagined the Western system just slightly changed, so that all of your, uh, you know, city councils and, um, you know, the, your regional or local sort of suburbs, sort of that local governance right there, you know, uh, the mayor of that place, et cetera. Uh, if you imagine that each local council was completely sovereign, but then had to be networked in diplomatic relations with all the other local councils, and then each region then had a representative. It's very close. It's very close. Because then those regional ones, then they go up, you know, and there are those elections and then there's state government where they all sort of collectivize and then there's the government for your entire nation. It's very close. The difference is the direction that the power moves. And so in that Western model, in that model of the Anglosphere, that uh, liberal governance model, which is all over the planet now, you don't have the right to exist if you don't have that in some way. It's just that unidirectional uh, flow of power that goes from the top to the bottom. Power and authority invested in the top institutions and in the elite, um, you know, people at the top of the pyramid and that that flows downwards. The only difference with us is that it goes, that it goes up, I guess. Not even up, but kind of out. <laughs> so it's just a different direction. Um, and so therefore our uh, policing is different. You know, our responses to criminality, it's different. It has to be about bringing things back into relation. It has to be something still that respects the sovereignty of the wrongdoer, as well as respecting the sovereignty of the, um, you know, the self-determination of the victim. It's because that has been compromised. So how do you bring that back into relation and restore that? Restore both of those parties to dignity and, um, you know, to a, a generative relation that's going to keep the community in balance. Tricky, eh? Mm. 
Yeah, some of these ideas are being captured, at least in some sense, in restorative justice conferences, which have had some success in terms of reducing crime and restoring that imbalance. And from what I recall from undergrad, uh, quite often the victims are concerned really with an apology and an explanation of the person's behaviour. So I guess kind of restoring that relationship in a sense, even if it was to a stranger. And yeah, stepping back to these other ideas of power from the bottom upwards, what kind of political ideas, say breaking it down to left and right in those simple binaries, because it seems like some of what you said would be welcome from both sides. You've got, say, the conservatives who typically want small government and individual rights, and you have, say, the liberals and the left who are more community approach that attempt to offset inequalities in society by shifting things like taxation and housing and income. So do you think these ideas could coexist with the indigenous model that you're talking about? Uh, <clears throat> well, I mean, that sounds great and that sounds like dialogue. <laughs> but it's like... Um, if you're going to burn down the house, you're going to burn down the house. You can't just say, well, let's compromise. Let's just set fire to one side of the house. My side of the house, I'll set fire to it. And your side of the house, we won't set fire to it. It's all going to burn down, bros. You know, it's, um, <laughs> it's more about seeing, like I said before, that the, the structure's there that could work, but it's just about changing that flow uh, of control. And, um, you know... <laughs> I don't know, this idea that we have that there's two sides to an argument and to, to all of these questions. Look, you know, uh, the weird people, so all capitals, W-E-I-R-D, so Western, educated, industrialized, rich, democratic, that is a minority of people on the planet. That's, that's the power that controls the planet and all things flow through that minority of people the western educated industrialized rich democratic and that's basically the law that we all need to abide by so even um you know these uh these foreign dictatorships that have a western uh installed puppet government and they're a monarchy and a and a complete dictatorship you know that's it's still the same model you know it's that top-down model of power and that's been installed there to make sure that that country's stable, i.e. that country won't nationalise and keep its own resources. They'll be happy to give it away to the weird ones, you know what I mean, uh, who are keeping their elites in place in order to facilitate that. Um, so you've got this weird culture, and it's a minority of people on the planet, and it's a completely different mindset. It's a completely different way of thinking. So, for example, if you're thinking in terms of justice, there are a lot of psychological studies that have been done over the last decade uh, comparing weird cognition and psychology to everyone else, like most of the people in the world. Uh, <laughs> and one of the biggest, uh, one of the biggest differences is, is relevant to what we're talking about, and that's uh, about the significance of intent in transgressions and in lawbreaking. So in the weird culture, intent is an important thing. Like that's important to establish in the justice system and everything else. And if that person can show that they didn't mean to do that crime, then it's a lesser sentence. You know, if that person can show they have remorse and that they have good intentions, then it's a lesser sentence. 
But for everyone else, and you can see this as a negative too, if you like, it's very unforgiving about intent. It doesn't matter whether you intended to break that law or not. The law was broken. And now you have to go through that punishment. It doesn't matter if you didn't know that you were doing it. It's you are, you now must be punished. You know, it doesn't matter that you were trying to do something good. It doesn't matter that you feel really sorry now. It's like you're still going to have to get that punishment cut or you're going to have to have your shoulder broken or you're going to have to spend the sex in the next six months supporting all of the, the, the nutrition and shelter needs of that person that you injured because they can't look out for that themselves. So whether you intended to injure them or not, that's still on you. You have to accept that punishment. Yeah. So, um, and it's a, it, it is a psychological thing as well. It's a way of thinking. And that's what sort of influences the way the law comes out, you know. Yeah, so there are some pretty interesting um, studies around that. I think you would enjoy this book I'm reading now. Uh, it's called The Weirdest People on Earth. And it has all the psychological studies, you know, around all that, around, you know, the social structures, the hierarchies, yeah, criminal behavior, et cetera, et cetera. But all, you know, coming from um, basically from psychological studies that show the different ways of thinking. And it also shows historically how the weird, weird way of thinking emerged and what it facilitated, you know, what it allowed, um, you know, part of the population to do of the planet at the expense of everybody else. Yeah, it is, it is very interesting. I think it's, it's um, and it's not a, it's not really critical. It's quite, it seems to be quite pro Western civilization too, just in case anybody out there wouldn't read it because they think it's, um, you know, going to be racist against the West or something. <laughs> It's a pretty good uh, review of all the literature, all the psychological uh, literature comparing the different ways of thinking around the world. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like an interesting book. I'll have to check it out. As you've alluded to there, like some of these ideas are confronting um, and even discussing colonialism in the modern context. Uh, some people can find it offensive and they may feel like they're being attacked or blamed personally. Mm. And I guess you see this a lot in the culture wars, which are especially prominent in the US at the moment, with discussions around critical race theory and things like that. But I am seeing this come across to Australia now as well. So like, let's say you're a white police officer and you're listening to this conversation. What do you think they should take away from it? Hmm. I, I think, yeah, they need to sort of take on board a little bit of systems thinking, a little bit of complexity. Uh, to actually see that, you know, when things happen, when there are causes and effects, that there are knock-on effects for that. And they can look at the butterfly effect or anything like this. So people need to see that there are externalities to every intervention that occurs, to every action, there are externalities. And that these often get externalised, uh, they get outsourced to the powerless and, and detonated there in those spaces. So basically, at the moment, the economic systems and social systems that we have are in what you call open loops. So a closed loop is like in an ecosystem, you know, where if a tree dies, everything in that tree is recycled back through to become somebody else's food. You know, it doesn't just rot there and then make a big mess. It's, you know, recycled back through the system. And even with that, that forest ecosystem, that produces, you know, waste and entropy. But then that is 
waste or entropy for another system. That's somebody else's lunch. You know what I mean? So in closed loops, everything is somebody else's lunch. Nothing's created or destroyed. Nothing is wasted. It's recycled down. What we have right now around the world is a series of uh, those loops have been broken open. So we have open loops. What has this got to do with people's personal experiences of feeling butthurt about talking about colonization? It's just you need to bring your awareness out that far. So you look at these open loops whereby everything that you get that's of benefit to you is doing damage somewhere else. And it's getting closer and closer. Your bubbles of privilege, you might see the walls closing in from that. You might see those walls breaking down and more and more of that damage is starting to come home to you. It's, yeah, and it's not your fault. You didn't do that. We're talking about big systems here. So you as an individual, you're not responsible for that. And I'm talking to everybody now, le left and right, because there are a lot of people on the left now who seriously can't see the systems. They talk about systemic racism, but they can't see the systems. They still believe that systemic racism is the result of individual attitudes in an aggregate. And that if we can just change the attitudes of individuals, can you see that human rights framing coming through again? of breaking communities down to individuals, social fragmentation, everybody makes their own choices. If we can just get everybody to choose anti-racism, then racism will disappear. Well, then how will you price anything? How will you keep the military, uh, the military industrial complex going, the prison industrial complex going, if you don't have you know, these minority populations to outsource all that entropy to? You know, <laughs> so that's what I say to the left. It's like, you can't continue having your economy and your civilization without racism and without inequality. You know, it's about everybody recognizing, recognizing the collateral damage that is happening to them from this stuff. And that it's not anything to do with anybody's individual attitudes or anybody's individual history. That's got nothing to do with anything. We're existing within massive, massive structures of uh, extraction that have been ramping up and ramping up to the point where everybody is compromised now, where everybody is going to start feeling the hurt and is already feeling the hurt of the effects of this. So if you're looking for a motivation to actually change the system and to you know, make things evenly distributed, um, that's because you won't be able to maintain. You're going to be the collateral damage. It's coming for you. You know, most social mobility now is downwards. The middle classes are emptying out. There's been a massive transfer of wealth just in the last year <laughs> that's gone right up to the top 1%, you know, um, and that's coming from the middle as well. That squeeze is sort of pressing us all together at the moment. And there are politics of distraction that are kind of designed to have us looking at each other's individual attitudes, policing each other's individual thoughts you know, looking at all our amazing individual intersectionalities or group identities, you know, so that we don't actually become groups. All we do is carry group identities individually <laughs> and then police the cultural and language choices uh, that we have around that. That's what democracy is right now. And I'd encourage everybody to, um, to look further, left and right. We're all looking in the wrong place. If your ego feels bruised about any of these interactions you're having or any discussions of systemic imbalances, then um, 
I, I, I don't think you're seeing the systems that are actually coming for you. And they are coming for you. They will take you down. <laughs> it's like uh, you're like one of the, you know, every now and then uh, to get a terrorist, uh, they have to drop a bomb on a wedding to get that one terrorist. But I, yes. Yeah. So you might be really innocent. You know, you're that you're the flower girl at that wedding. And you might be innocent, but then theoretically, you were probably going to benefit from that tourism down the track uh, when you're old enough to have your own children and get married and, you know, all of the, you know, terrorist acts, you know, that are being uh, perpetrated by your, you know, your guerrilla mates and your, your uncles and all that sort of thing, if they result in, you know, oil being nationalized for your country so that your country actually gets to keep the oil and you end up with a whole heap of schools and universal basic income and stuff like that, then you, you'd be benefiting from terrorism down the tracks of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's so weird, but everybody, everybody's like the flower girl at a wedding that gets bombed to kill a terrorist. It's um, it doesn't matter from our perspective, what your intent is or what your intention is. <laughs> You're there. And it's systems that are dropping these bombs on you. It's not other individuals with bad attitudes. Um, most of these attitudes are designed for us and prepackaged in little algorithms and um, uh, social media groups, <laughs> etc. And we, you know, we're all funneled into all these weird and wonderful little packages and then sort of thrown together. And um, so that we can, you know, when we do feel like, oh my God, the world is dying, we've got to do something about it. And we collectivize and we organize in little groups. We end up fighting with each other or with other groups. And basically, we just end up, you know, we apply for a permit to uh, protest. <laughs> and we do a little march. And then we, we put pressure on somebody to do this intervention, to change this thing, to make it more fair. The only problem is that has knock-on effects somewhere else. You know, if you prevent poaching of elephants in one region, then that just means you wiped out all the rhinoceros in the next region because the poachers just have to move on to over there. You know, it's um, most of these interventions that people demand and any kind of, you know, small scale change, it's not systemic change. It's just shifting around the externalities onto somebody else. Um, so I guess every action that you're going to do, you know, within a system, you need to think about, what are the externalities here? And it is complex. So <laughs> if that hurts your ego, then you're thinking about it the wrong way. Both ears, left and right. Psst. Yeah, so some more skeptical people might say, well, that sounds great, but we live in a society with similar systems and different values. And they might say, it sounds great, but in practice, it doesn't work. But what doesn't work? Right I'm, not, I'm not proposing. I'm not proposing any solution here. No. Anybody who thinks they have a solution to any of this is an idiot. Anyone who's individually designing and proposing a solution, probably not someone you want to listen to. It takes a lot of people coming together, and you know, being in right relation with each other, um, to actually create the conditions for the emergence of systemic solutions. These things can't be designed by in individual minds or think tanks or lobby groups or anything like this. 
These are community things. And it starts with you for yourself in your relationships. And then it's your community, you and your community and building that strong community because it starts from the bottom up. That's the only way you get it going. And it's not about fighting the power and it's not about talking truth to power because power already knows the truth. If you've got someone, I mean, you've got a racist neighbor, there's no truth you're going to tell them to change their attitude. <laughs> Leave it alone. You've got a social justice warrior that bloody yells things over the fence about patriarchy. You're not going to change <laughs> their mind. <laughs> But you could make a relationship with that person and you could make a community, you know, that's strong in relationships where you're focused on, oh, I don't know, next time the supply chains fall apart, um, how are we going to get our food? Uh, you might just, you know, whether you're a libertarian left or libertarian right, you might look at uh, trying to put together a bit of a, a food co-op where everybody's growing food together and, and sharing food in that way. Because you're going to need those structures and they'll need to be in place uh, pretty soon uh, in order to get through the next decade. Because the next decade is going to be hairy. So start your relationships like that. And out of that will come governance models that are local. And they'll be scalable in that same fractal way if they're right. If they're actually coming out of that place and out of good relation and good story. And that's it. And it's not a solution. That's just, it's up to you. Yeah. So, yeah, do you want to talk a bit more about Sand Talk? Because it's a fascinating read, and I think everyone should read it, especially if they're interested in these types of ideas. What inspired you to write Sand Talk, and what would you like people to take away from it? Uh, <clears throat> well, if I'm, if I'm telling the truth, it's really just a... It's a it's, a, it's about, I mean, you're in a marketplace. So what inspired me to write Sand Talk is that they offered me a $5,000 advance and I really, really, really needed $5,000, you know, for transport, food, shelter, all that kind of thing. You know, it was a time when I really needed it. So that's it. I mean, you're within a marketplace and you have to do certain things. You have to do some things that you may not agree with and you may not like. And you have to keep alive the idea of what it is to be human and the pattern of what it is to be in, in human communities and the pattern of what it is to be uh, embedded in a landscape, you know, as an organism, in an ecosystem of organisms. You have to keep alive the memory of your ecological niche as part of a custodial species. So, you know, for me, it, it was basically all about... Um, uh, trying to juggle all of those things together. I mean, in a very real way, it wasn't about trying to share that with other people. You know, it was, that was just my interaction with the marketplace. And, you know, a marketplace that I obviously didn't understand very well because two years later, I'm still doing this stuff. I thought I would just be able to collect my $5,000 and go home. <laughs> but now I'm accountable for all those words I've put out into the world. and. Um, unfortunately people don't read books people read people they the person is the product you know people don't say what are you reading they say who are you reading you know and um and it just becomes you know a, a human being becomes a something that loses sovereignty and becomes a product so i'm um i guess i'm basically just resisting that uh, from day to day now so yeah my motivation for doing it was um 
was nothing noble or uh, or lovely. <laughs> it was purely just survival. And um, yeah, and now it's just about navigating, negotiating a marketplace that's um, that's trying to eat me alive. And um, yeah, having some yarns with people that um, can generate the conditions for people to come into uh, into relation. And I tell you, there's a critical mass around the planet of people just doing that. And they're not all talking about it online. They're just getting it done. Anybody who's talking about it online and trying to like community organize everyone together and form yet another bloody group or yet another not-for-profit or yet another bloody organizational protest group or whatever, you know, with a president and a secretary and a treasurer and a mission statement and all that sort of stuff. They don't last very long. They kind of fall apart. It's easy to it's easy to destroy one of those organizations. You just walk in and sort of say, so what does everyone think of trans issues? There'll be at least one person there who doesn't say the right thing, and then the whole thing will fall apart and they'll kind of uh, break up. So it's 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 real easy. You can just go in, you know, all the, there's just all these different competing ideologies at the moment. It's really easy to fragment a group of people who are trying to come into relation with each other. And the sort of hierarchies that form in these organizations, they're very brittle structures. They're fragile structures. And, you know, human beings, we need to learn how to be more anti-fragile uh, individually, but also within our relations, within our groups and collectives. These need to be anti-fragile. In the end, you, um, and you've got to be happy to let it go and then just go and start the next thing um, and just keep making those relationships. Because, you know, seeds survive. It goes into spore mode. You know, our, our relationships continue. And, um, yeah, and that's been generative. And now we're having this yarn. Hmm. Yeah, I've enjoyed our chats over the years. So I guess taking it back to Sand Talk, what would you say was the key message from that book? I think it's a, it was basically Sand Talk is about the fragility of civilizations. And, you know, and it's, it's not much different from the message of most books, most content at the moment is really just struggling with uh, different views on how to deal with that. How do we deal with the fragility of, uh, of, um, of these civilization structures that we've put in place all over the planet? How do we deal with that and how do we mitigate that? What's the 2.0 that we move to? Or what's the reset that we move to? You know, uh, what does that look like? How do we do that? And is there even a we that's capable of doing that anymore? Or are we all just going to be talking about it while the wheel does what the wheel does? <laughs> yeah, you said something uh, quite interesting before, and I came across it in one of your other interviews, uh, this idea of human beings as a custodial species for the planet. Do you want to talk a bit more about that? Yeah, well, we, we are and will continue to be. You know, we're supposed to be this highly adaptive species that can occupy that large ecological niche of being the custodial species uh, across all different kinds of environments. We have to be able to shift with ecosystems and move with the land. Uh, that's that message, move with the land or the land will move you. <laughs> we have to be able to do that and manage, you know, all the migrations and movements and and changes and shifts of, you know, so many different entities, you know, um, we're the ones that have to um, keep things generative, keep things in motion, keep things sustainable in that way. 
Um, that's what we are for. That's our role. Um, you, you see, no matter where the ecosystem is, every niche is always filled. You'll see it really, you know. So you go to New Zealand and every ecological niche, and there's there were pretty much no marsupials, uh, no mammals in New Zealand. And there was one native mammal, tiny little thing. But New Zealand's been, a, you know, a, um, a land of birds, you know, forever. And so, you know, um, up until a few hundred years ago, you had, <clears throat> you had birds that were occupying every ecological niche from elephant right down to um, ground-dwelling, burrowing sort of mole-like birds with no wings at all, you know. Every single ecological niche was filled by birds and all of those birds adapted to be in that. And the people who were there before the Maori arrived were the people who were, you know, custodians of that. <laughs> and, you know, and now Maori are the custodians of that. You know, it's, there, was, there was big disruptions, you know, with their arrival, but then came back into because they are, you know, in that way of being Indigenous and of uh, having law that's in relation uh, to land and place, then they did have to come back into balance with that place and then figure out how to manage it properly, in which they did in a pretty short time. It was just a few hundred years. Um, and then more disruption. <laughs> so, you know, um, yeah. And populations need to figure that out over time. Uh, if they have these civilizing structures um, and institutions, then, you know, these things tend not to last much more than 500 to 1,000 years. The, those those lands become deserts really quickly. Uh, yeah. Cool. So is there anything else you want to talk about in relation to, say, the criminal justice space or policing or imprisonment? Ah, uh, you know, subject, but... stop killing us, maybe. <laughs> nah, I, I understand. You have to kill us, you know, because if you don't, then your economy will will fall apart and you won't be able to continue the extractive activities and the economic growth that's needed so that you can all live. I guess it's kill or be killed. So, <laughs> but I tell you, there's got to be a way through it. And I think if more of us are using a systems thinking lens on the world and are actually looking at not just power relations, you know, not just the elites and everybody else, and not just like, um, you know, ideological views of everything, I mean, you're always going to be influenced by that, but just from time to time, try and step back and see the system uh, where it is. Because if you see that, then you start to see where the basins of attraction are for change, and you might be able to move towards those and contribute something to it. Or you might see the basins of attraction for you know, terrible things that are going on where you might be able to do one little thing in there uh, that puts a ripple through that. Nobody will ever know you did it, but... Um, <laughs> You can sleep easy knowing you did something at least, you know, but most of the things we're being asked to do and support and rally behind are ineffective things. And all these do are like little cultural sort of shifts uh, that just basically ignite and reignite into infinity culture wars that are taking all our eye off the ball as a custodial species. Custodial species got to have your eye across the whole thing. And you can't do that on your own. You've got to be with somebody. You've got to be in relation. And, um, yeah, keep going. Keep moving. Adapt. Survive it. 
check out Afghanistan. They've they've done they've done it very well. <laughs> um, they pretty much do that and do what you need to do better than anyone else. Obviously, not literally like them, but you know, they just keep adapting, changing. It's like, well, you know, um, we're going to disable all your vehicles. It's like that's fine. We ride horse, <laughs> off they go. And it's like, well, we're going to surveil you through your uh, emails and your telephones. And it's like, well, that's all right. We write letter. So they write letter. <laughs> you know, and they communicate that way. It's like, well, we're going to bomb the shit out of all your communities. It's, that's all right. We take horses up to mountains. Boom, off they go. And they're in the mountains. And nobody's ever been able to beat them. 10,000 years people have been trying. And, um, and off they go. So... That's not a pro-Taliban message. It's just uh, giving you an, an idea of something that works. You've always got to be able to move, shift. You know, if one technology is um, um, making things no good, you need to be able to move to the next, move to another one. See if there's an analog that will give you the same affordances. Yeah, and you've got to be able to move around. But it only works if you're in good relation and in good community. Uh, so you take care of that first. Yeah. And then keep moving, and you too will be like Afghanistan. You'll be the last man standing. As I tell you, when every, everything else is destroyed, every other place on earth, they'll probably still be there <laughs> and inherit the earth. Um, yeah. Let's yeah, hope cool they figure out how, how, to, how, to treat, how to treat their women first <laughs> before that happens. Otherwise, it's going to be a pretty shitty place to live. Yeah. Well, on that note, Tyson, thank you so much for your time. It's been great to hear some divergent thoughts on these issues, and I hope people can take away at least a temporary mind shift that can get them thinking about different ways of approaching life, essentially. So just have a laugh. Yeah. If, if the only thing you take away is that you're able to hear such heinous thoughts and have a good laugh about them, then um, I tell you what, that, that's uh, more than I could hope for. That's beautiful. Yeah. No worries, Michael. Brother man. <laughs>